Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Parent Driven Development. My name is Mandy Moore and I am here with my friend Allison McMillan. Hi, I'm Allison. I'm here with my friend Jess. Hey, I'm Jess and I'm here with my friend Adam. So Adam started as a professional actor, turned the corner into advertising and found his way into tech entrepreneurship and education. Adam performed for the world-renowned Oregon Shakespeare Festival before making his way into creative director for the Dutch Brothers Coffee, where he oversaw brand strategy for all of their franchise locations. After six years at Dutch Brothers, he co-founded Define Your Edge, their mission to maximize the customer experience, understand the why, and let that influence the how. Within a few years, he co-founded Zeal. When not writing code, he speaks internationally on company culture, software development, best practices, and agile methodologies. And if you're one of the rare few, you may catch him on stage. Now, this episode, we're going to be talking about Adam's journey to uh, having his child. And we recognize that this includes some fertility issues. A lot of people certainly struggle with this. And we recognize that is not your cup of tea. Uh, you may want to skip this episode, but we hope that you can join us as we learn more about this. So Adam, I guess maybe you want to just start by kind of giving us a background on your path to having your kid. Yeah, gladly. So I'm in my mid-30s, and when I was in my mid-20s, I got married uh, to my beautiful wife. And at the time, we we had always envisioned that we would have children, and we assumed at the time that we would probably have them biologically. And so we had started pretty much from the beginning that we would try having kids. So at about 26, we had started, and our goal was to have kids by, or at least our first by 27 or thereabouts. Well, 27 came and went, then 28 came and went, then 29 came and went. And as we were approaching 30, uh, we started to ask ourselves, well, something isn't quite right about this, given that we've been off birth control and whatnot for a long time, and we were trying regularly, but just not seeming to have a lot of success here. And so we started right around that point in time, really taking it seriously. We'll put that in air quotes, which involved talking to some medical professionals and whatnot. 30 past, 31, 32, up until very recently, and again, I'm in my mid-30s now, when we realized that this was much more of an issue for us to have kids, at least in that kind of very, I don't know that it's fair to say natural, but just in a very direct sense. And so as a result of that, we started to look at alternatives and really explore what was it that was causing the challenge or issue, and then what we could do about that. And so in January of this year, 2018, my wife surprised me while we were at Wizarding World of Harry Potter at Universal Studios. We've got this great series of pictures that we were pregnant. And then at the very end of September, September 29th, my daughter, Charlie Joanne, was born. And so I've now been a parent for like tomorrow will be two months. I will have been a parent. So here we are. That's so cool. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. So maybe it would help if you could share like some of the various methods you guys tried, uh, kind of what you learned along the way. I know that there's a lot of medicine involved in this, and so maybe it would help some of our listeners to understand more kind of what you looked at and why and stuff. Absolutely. So what we realized pretty early on was that this is far from a new problem um, as far as for many couples. 
uh, in fact, a couple of statistics to throw out there, like 15% or thereabouts, the Mayo Clinic estimates couples have as far as fertility. So about 15% of couples have struggles with infertility, which is pretty large, a lot higher than I would have assumed it would have been. So starting from that vantage point, there's nothing new about this challenge as far as for us as a people is concerned. So there's a lot of support out there. And that's really where we started was looking at the biological mechanics of it. There's two components to this. You have eggs and you have sperm, and it's the combination of the two that makes all this work. And if either of those are struggling, either you know the mechanics of either are having issue, then it's this very fine line between success and not quite success. We won't call it failure. And so as a result of that, that's really where we began was to try and diagnose those things. For us, what I think was unfortunately common was we immediately drew the assumption, as did a lot of the people we saw, that the issues probably lied in my wife, Julia. We very rarely were approached with, hey, you're the other half of this equation and you really need to get checked out. It was a little bit more passing. It was like, hey, you know, Julia's got all of these tests she can do and assessments that can be done. And some of them are quite evasive versus others that are much more blood tests that can just check for hormone levels and whatnot. And oh, and by the way, you really should do a test too at some point in time, but we'll make sure that she gets checked out first. Well, we kind of followed that plan for years. And because she was in a relatively high stress job and she naturally had irregular periods, that became the evidence that it was very possible that the, the challenges we were having were hers more than they were mine. Well, jettisoned forward quite a few years. I mean, all that time, I was never tested. And it wasn't until we got down here to San Diego that we went to a fertility specialist and they said, well, we need to know that the challenges you're experiencing are not in large part due to some challenges you're having. Well, lo and behold, I went and had tests done and basically across the board, I was either low or had issue. So by all accounts, you could have labeled me infertile. Um, just totally incapable to provide quality sperm. Whereas my wife, coincidentally, passed with flying colors and continued to. In fact, they kind of put things on a spectrum as far as where they expect you biologically to be in comparison to your age. And they sort of track as, as a success metric against that number. So let's say as an example, they assume that you're going to meet some biological benchmark at the age of 30. They test to see whether or not you're in alignment with that. And that kind of addresses risk and whatnot. Well, in her situation, Situation, even though she was also in her mid-30s, biologically, she was tracking at her mid-20s. So in other words, she was doing really well as far as against the, we'll call it the, the societal benchmark as far as that was concerned. Me, on the other hand, total opposite situation. So for us, it was very clear that the challenges were mostly on my behalf. And we had to look at, well, what are the things that cause low motility, low sperm counts and things of that nature. And very quickly, the solution that was presented to us was external intervention, whether it was different procedures that could be done or medications that could be taken. And for me, that was something that was a little unsettling. And I wanted to look at this a little differently and think, well, are there other things that I can do that are less evasive, most definitely less evasive for my wife, Julia, because for her, many of these procedures involved her directly. So all I had to do was to contribute my sperm, but many of the things that she would have to do would be quite substantial as, as far as you know, medications she'd need to take or procedures she'd need to go through, which didn't set well with me. So if there were ways in which for me to be able to improve my sperm count and my kind of contribution to this equation then I wanted to do that first. And the first stop in there was hormonal. After some kind of some basic research, to be frank, 
realizing that a huge part of what makes infertility very real from the male side of the equation is hormonal. That if hormones are off, just like it would be for a woman, if the hormones are off, it kind of throws the entire thing off. And so if I could improve testosterone levels and whatnot through either exercise or other means, even nutrition for that matter, then I'd have a better chance at improving my overall count and therefore I could address my sort of challenge. So I actually started with that first. I went and got a personal trainer and worked a lot to increase testosterone levels naturally versus you know some medication or some androgynous means. And within about a month, my levels across the board started to improve. And by the time, about four months later, after putting quite a bit of effort in, all but one factor had entirely normalized or quite exceeded the mark. And so it really kind of brought my attention to the other factors that could contribute into this for at least for me and and my wife that would allow for at least to kind of see whether or not I could improve the baseline on my behalf before we looked at other means. Now, at the same time, we started to really understand and explore what those more evasive means would be, ranging all the way up to IVF. And luckily, we were in a situation where we didn't have to go through that part, but we definitely explored that for a period of time as well. I'm curious about the emotional weight of that journey and how, if it shifted when you sort of figured out that the issue is actually more the sperm as opposed to the years that it was assumed that it was your wife or, but also I think biologically women have more of like a pull to have a baby, especially if you sort of already have that mindset that you would like to have children. How is that emotional weight for both of you? Did it switch on and off. I'm just really curious about that. Well, for her, it was very palpable quite often. Every month, it was a reminder. So there was that reminder every single month that we felt like we failed, that we didn't do something right, that we missed the mark again. And in the beginning, it was tough. And then it became the status quo kind of normal. There was this component of acceptance as the years progressed. And then we started getting back to it where as we're starting to put more awareness and therefore kind of create our own intervention into the, into the situation, we then kind of put there that monthly reminder of her having her period would come back every single time. For her, it weighed really heavy. And for me, it did too. For her, it became really hard to see our friends start to have kids and for us not to be a part of that. It was really tough to see our siblings Um, I don't have siblings, but she has quite a few. And to see them having their kids and then their second kids and feeling like, you know, as her being the oldest of all of them, feeling like we're really seriously missing out and that we're a failure at something. And what didn't help was there's a lot of conversation in the fertility world about this being hard because it's an indication of the health of these individuals as far as a species is concerned. And the irony was, while it would satisfy this kind of check mark of explaining or validating that this was tough, it had this other impact, which was, oh, and by the way, you're not good enough. It had that feeling. And that really sucked. That sucked a lot. What I didn't mention was in 2011, we did have a miscarriage. We're not quite sure if it was a boy or a girl, but they had made it about 11 weeks or so. And then she had miscarried. And that amplified the whole experience about like we were so close, that feeling of just being so close yet failing and not being able to have that thing that we wanted so badly. Because in our mind, we were always parents. And I think that's something to remember is for us, we didn't become parents once she was born. We had been parents for years. 
We just didn't have a child yet. And that was hard because we'd see kids and we'd imagine ourselves holding our kids. Coincidentally, I had actually done a show, a play, where the character I had played had lost his young daughter very early on. And he had become this recluse and moved to this very rural area in northern Canada. And and there's this moment at the very end of the show where he has this monologue where he goes into just really the depth of despair that it caused to lose something so precious that was just a pure representation of himself. And that really resonated for me. In fact, it's kind of making me a little emotional. Like I remember the feeling of visualizing so clearly what it was like to hold my daughter, yet never being able to do that. And to feel that just immense depth of loss, even though I hadn't lost anything yet, that was really, really hard. It didn't help that, you know, people would call our dogs our fur babies because they're not our babies. They're our dogs. And I know that people are trying to console and be generous and helpful and appreciative and be polite, but there's an irony in it. But you don't understand. I have a child. I just can't hold them yet. And that's hard. That's the really gut wrenching side of all of this. Adam, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, we uh, tried to have a second child, and after attempt after attempt, there was a miscarriage, and that was the last child we had. So I went through a lot of that myself. So I know that's really hard. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, you got me all like teary over here as well. <laughs> there's like such intense emotions. I feel like anytime, because, okay, there's this thing, and it's supposed to work, and it's just supposed to happen, because there's a whole population of people that it just that it happens for. I don't know, I've used a couple of apps in the past just to sort of track period ovulation and what that window looks like and how long or short of a window is and that sort of stuff. And there is sort of like that monthly reminder. And I was caught off guard how early I felt so emotionally invested each time that we were trying to get pregnant. I wanted it to happen immediately. Thank you for sharing. Well, to that point, I think that's where Julia and I differed a little bit. And reflecting back now, I mean, I feel like it's easier spoken about now than felt at the time, which was I always believed we would be parents. I always believed that it would work somehow. Uh, you know, in the last couple of years, we talked very seriously and, and are still continuing to talk seriously about adoption. You know, not that we discredited it before, it just wasn't our ideal in our mind. That's not what we had visualized. But at the time, especially up to that point, I had always felt and known that we would be parents at, at one point in time. I don't want to speak out a turn or speak for Julia, but I feel like as her partner, what I witnessed was there was this very clear moment where she truly felt like it was not a part of our destiny. And moving on from that was harder than just about anything else that we could do. And like you, I think I witnessed that kind of immediate attachment. Like she had got a couple of master's degrees. So during that period of time, there was a lot of education in the middle there. And we had talked about timing and whatnot, even though we had been trying the whole time. And it was tough to make the decision that, okay, we're going to put on hold our intention here and our effort here to get pregnant while you're going through school to get your degree. But then directly following, we're going to start up again and we're going to make this happen. And so we would hit that point. We'd start up again to make this happen and then it wouldn't and it would go on. Also, she was a high school teacher for a long period of time in a rural high school in Oregon. And it was equally as hard to watch that there were a fair amount of kids that 
in this rural high school that would get pregnant as teens or directly following high school. And so to kind of watch that combination and feel like, why is it working for them and not for us? And also being kind of a parent to these teenagers to a large extent and feeling like I'm already a parent, I'm already attached to the idea. So if I'm giving it up, I'm not just giving up a part of my personal identity, but I think a part of my perceived identity as a parent. And that was adding to that a lot. There's something very perverse and poor about the connection in the community that we encourage for ourselves with other men going through the same problem. There was a lot of community for her. And I think it was far more natural, as painful as it was, it was much more natural for her to be able to engage into a community of other struggling parents. Whereas for me, while I would consider myself somebody that doesn't shy away from that, it was never put in the forefront. And I think what partially amplified that was our experience with, with the idea of me having struggle playing such second fiddle to her. And so we put so much attention on, oh, we got to remove stress in your life. And, oh, we've got to do this. And, you know, let's track your period and really target trying to get it to being on a consistent period of time every single month and remove the irregularity. And, when, oh, I know you just did that one relatively evasive test that sucked to do that required you to take A, B, C, and D. And now you're in an emotional wreck because it just screwed with your hormones, but let's do it again because we're not sure of the results. I mean, there's a huge amount of guilt, I feel, (laughs) about putting her through all that. And that was, again, why when we realized a struggle that I had, I had to try other things first that didn't involve her having to go through more of that. But as her partner, I feel it's my obligation to be an equal player at this game and to truly be on this team that we're here together and that I think that's the side of being a man in this equation that's so essential is getting tested is not just about determining whether your sperm is okay. It's about recognizing that you're half of this and that the value and importance in you playing an active role in that, even if you end up ruling it out, is absolutely essential to making this a team effort. It's critical. You have to do that step. And so adding to that is, I think that having not just individuals like myself, but having men, whether you've had a challenge with it or otherwise, to make this an active conversation for the sanctity of the relationship that you have with your partner is so critical. Even if you're getting in a group of other men and none of you have had known fertility issues, talk about fertility. Talk about the value and importance that has with your partner. And make sure that that conversation is known because it's not just about having an erection and putting it to use. And that's the real takeaway that I had from this whole experience. And, And to be frank, the reason why I wanted to have this conversation on this podcast was because as a man, I went through that even though I never perceived that I was ever a part of that. And so here we are. Yeah, that's really, really powerful. The way you talked about how the doctors went after your partner in this conversation, it's surprising in a way and also kind of not. I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little more about why you think that might be. Well, I think it's because to a certain extent, I think this is maybe textbook true that the mechanics for the components of male fertility versus female fertility, the different working parts that make it all come together, there's far more on one side than there are another. For men, by and large, it really comes down to only three things. It's the quality of the sperm, the vessel, the quality of the semen, the vessel, the sperm, the actual contributing component, 
and then the just basic plumbing that goes into getting it from point A to point B. It doesn't actually get much more complicated than that. Whereas for women, it's it's quite different. There's a lot of moving parts and components. One of them that's probably the most prominent is, to a certain extent, it's a moving target. Whereas with the moving target being the period, ovulation. Whereas with men, this is kind of an exaggeration, but it's about every 15 minutes, you kind of have that equal increment of the ability to to make that contribution to be a, a pregnant couple. And so because of it, it, you know, there's only a few different knobs that get turned on one side versus the other. And so I don't mean to imply or put down the doctors that were involved, but because there's so much more complexity in that regard, it's a quick assumption that there must be more going on there, whereas it was for me. Now, at the same time is, and I do think part of this is that from a masculine perspective, like that kind of masculine uh, thing, you know, boarding on toxic masculinity is it is a very pure representation of strength to a lot of men. And I don't think it should be. And so because of that, it's like, well, I know you mentioned it, but I mean, I get an erection. So, you know, clearly it's not me. And so not even having the conversation is perpetuating the idea that it's very much that you could be contributing to that as much as, as she could and vice versa. And so it's the lack of conversation around it that reinforces the value of it. So it's not that it didn't happen, because it did, but we just never, quote unquote, took it seriously, or as seriously as we did her. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. It's a real shame that people equate that sense of masculinity, I think, with fertility. You really hit it on the head. My experience, uh, I'm transgender, and I was contributing the male components of the formula. And my experience going through that process, this is pre-transition, was very much in line, I think, in what, with what you kind of brought to the table here was like, oh, well, everybody focused on my partner and nobody focused on me. And, you know, eventually we got around to testing me, but it wasn't until after we'd gone through so many different things with my partner. And yeah, it was just kind of surprising that the conversation didn't start with, well, let's look at everything involved here and get a whole clear picture of everything, you know, on both sides. I think the doctors were so nervous about like impugning my masculinity, which is yeah, per- well said, but. totally. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Puning your masculinity, totally, because of all the tests to do, it's one of the most pleasurable and quick to have done is a semen analysis, right? I mean, it's like, of all the things you could do, it's like, why not have them do it, right? (laughs) That's the irony in it all. Yeah, yeah. It would have been so easy. It would have been so easy. I have a question about your current status. So now you have a beautiful baby girl. I wonder if you feel either external pressure or pressure that you put on yourself to love every second of parenting because it was such a journey and an effort to sort of to conceive and to have the child that you have. Because parenting, yes, there are lots of great moments, but there are also a bunch of really bad, really exhausting, really tired hiring moments. And so I'm just curious about the, if you feel either that you put on yourself or that you feel like other folks who sort of know a little bit about the journey put on you to be like, well, this is what she wanted. This is everything that you've sort of desired for the last decade or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely get that comment a lot about, are you soaking it up because you've been trying so hard? And I don't think I'm soaking it up any more than I assumed I would. And I think it goes back to, I've always felt like I was a parent. I just didn't have a child. So for me, I had visualized it for so long that it feels very natural now. Like I kind of what I was expecting to have happen was I was expecting her to be born. And then all of a sudden this kind of 
rush or wave of new reality was going to hit me above and beyond the obvious, right? I mean, clearly I have to take care of this third person, but setting that side of going to the just, oh my gosh, everything has changed and I value something more than I could have ever imagined. To be frank, that hasn't happened. Not to say I wasn't valuing it. I didn't experience that, but I get asked that question all the time of, do you value it more because of that? I will say this, that what I have discovered that I value is I value the journey a lot more. And as a result of that, it has given me a greater sense that that it is hard and that because it's hard and that it's worth pursuing, that there are many other things in my life that are probably the same way, that are hard but worth pursuing. And because of that, I've had this newfound desire to really explore the things that I felt I was limited to because I did put a lot of hard work and we put a lot of hard work into getting where we are today. Charlie is a great representation of that for me. It's not, I don't put anything on her, but as far as just the way I end up kind of actualizing it and seeing it. And I'd also say that, again, we've been so mentally prepared for this idea, so prepared that we would have our son or daughter with us that because of that, we're just now kind of living out the visualization. And as far as visualization goes, I mean, this is one area that I think is super important that for people listening to this who have that same desire to kind of have children, whether they be biological or otherwise, or is the visualization is the most essential component of it because it's the thing that kept us going. It kept me going through and through. It kept me going. It made me push harder when I was working out because I knew that the result of me spending that time would increase this and give us a better chance at making this work. It gave me a much greater and deeper respect and appreciation for the time we put into thinking about the involvement of kids at our business and in our company. And so because of all of those things, I spent more of my energy focusing on what does matter in my life and bettering all those things in the pursuit of the belief that one day this will become a reality for us. When I've talked to people who've struggled similarly, more often than not, the first thing to go is the belief. And it's that they, they stop visualizing it or, or they start to associate the visualization to something so negative, right? The inability to have that thing. And the first step is to encourage that come back and start to think about it another way and to look at the incremental changes that can be made to kind of help that cause. And of course, not to forget at any point in time that there are so many options. When we had first discovered that there were three more evasive options, other than my personal desire to not put my wife through things at first and see what I could do, I was blown away by how confident the medical field was. And don't worry, we'll get you pregnant. Like the probability that one of these is going to work is really high. It really just comes down to, you know, how much money do you have? But one way or another, this will work. But then in addition to that was taking a big step back and really providing that kind of open opportunity to really think seriously about adoption. I don't think we ever really did. We knew it was an option, of course, and we thought about it. But when we kind of got to that point of, is it more important for us to be to be parents to a child or to not be parents at all? It was clearly we want to be parents. And we knew we could provide a great household for any child that came to us. And so believing in that gave us an even more kind of newfound desire to just be parents. And that helped our visualization and put it into context that maybe the birth experience won't be the same or existent at all, but being parents can be there. We can do that. It's just a matter of making the choice. I love that so much. I think it's so powerful. Not having the option now to have a second kid, I've thought a lot about what that looks like to continue to 
expand my love for people and to share that with people and my, my values, my perspectives and things. And I think I've really gained a deeper perspective into different ways to be a parent in a community as part of a group to, to share that love in many ways. And I think that's a really fantastic opportunity too, that I'm deeply grateful for. So I really understand what you're saying there. Yeah, I feel the same way. Being a single mom, my daughter's nine. I've thought I don't foresee myself in a relationship or finding someone who I could see myself having another child with. So I've kind of had to let go of that. The first experience obviously wasn't very great for me. I was alone during my whole pregnancy. So I'm like, I have those dreams of, I wonder what it would have been like to have had a loving partner during this time. And But I think I have accepted that I'm just going to have one child and, and that's okay. I appreciate that perspective more than anything. And I adding to that is one of the gifts that parents can bring to those that are struggling is not to bestow their level of acceptance, but allow for those struggling parents to find theirs. And so what we would get approached with a lot was, you know, from those that had kids was, you know, don't worry about it or doesn't make you any less of a human being, or kids are a pain in the ass, so don't, that whole number, none of that helped. None of it helps. Instead, what it is, is I'm here to hear you. I'm here to listen to you, and you're no less than me. We are on the same playing field. We're humans together. And that's the part that, as a struggling parent, I appreciated more than anything else to hear, was you're no less than us. You are a part of us, and we're here to help, and to listen and just be there for you. And if you can accept that you have a community, then by simply having that acceptance, we feel loved. Yeah, that's amazing advice. And I wanted to close with one question, and that was what resources did you find helpful? Were there, were there apps or support communities or websites or whatnot that you know maybe folks that are going through fertility struggles or whatnot, things that, that you found helpful that you would recommend to others? As uncomfortable as it is, I found a lot of support in just being very open about the challenge with my family. And I know families can be kind of a questionable thing for some people. So define your family as either biologically connected or socially connected. Either way that works, however you define family, a positive version of family is great. My first step was to be very open with them. I I was very open about the story. I was very open about the struggle. And quickly, I started to hear of everyone else's struggle. There was somebody I worked for who had four beautiful kids and he had a 10-year struggle. I would have never guessed. I would have just assumed that they were fertile from the beginning and here they go. There was a client of ours who we had become friends and so I felt comfortable just kind of telling him about my journey and same exact situation. And it opened up, oh, well, for in our situation, which is very contextual and specific, this is what we did And so it's something for you to think about or consider. So that would be the first step is go to your family, however you define that. And if you're comfortable with it, strive to be open about that so you can start to hear similar journeys and understand that component of it. Second to that is if you're in a larger area, especially down here in San Diego, and San Diego coincidentally is known for its birth rates and whatnot. It's to a certain extent, one of the kind of hot zones for that, for good and bad reasons, to be frank. But because of that, if you're in a larger community, the the probability that there's going to be an actual support group is very, very high. And the quick go-to is go to your hospital or your fertility clinic and ask them who they know so that you can find other struggling parents to kind of talk with. Similar to that, like I think of my wife going to a breastfeeding group, 
those who struggle together learn together. And that's the beautiful thing. And so you could go there too. And then of course, going online. But the thing I'd always caution with anybody going online is recognize that just like we were told when we were going through our birthing class is don't just listen for the stories that are negative, look for the ones that are positive. And so I would recommend the same there. Again, if you go online and you're just hunting and pecking around, you're going to find plenty about how you should avoid that. Don't do it. It didn't work for me. Da, da, da. But you'll also find just as much, if not more, about the really positive things that were happening. What were the things that we did to make that change? And I think you're going to find that Again, those that struggle together grow together. And so because of that, this is one area where those who have publicly expressed their struggle are very likely to be welcome to those who would like to have conversation around that struggle and things that they did to do that, to get around it. As far as apps were concerned, other than ovulation-oriented apps, we didn't use anything along those lines. What we're predicting is even though I had addressed issues with sperm and semen, at the same time, it still took many months to get pregnant. And it was important to remember that once you're fertile, it's like, boom, the first 30 days are golden and you're done. It doesn't work that way. It's still hard. So it's important to remember that once you have the test done and validated and you know that you're kind of at a good baseline to move forward with is to also recognize that you still have time that it's, you still have to hit that mark. And ovulation is super critical. And what we realized was there's a good possibility that we were off by a few days. And so kind of getting that support, that those regular check-ins with a medical professional that could help really evaluate those bits and pieces made a massive difference in us being able to time it right. So we didn't end up in the same situation that we had been in years past, which was assuming that it wasn't for us or we weren't destined for that. No, it just takes time. It, it is hard, even when it looks easy. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, so now we're going to move into our segment of the show where we talk about our genius and fail moments. So this is a time in the last week or two where you felt like genius, you did a really great thing as a parent, something that was really smart and that made you feel like a really excellent parent or a fail, which is something that maybe didn't feel great or didn't turn out quite the way you had hope. So Mandy, I think you were going to go first. I have a genius because I'm super proud of myself. The first couple of years of Maisie's life, we were too poor to have a Christmas tree. And then I had a fake one. And then I started getting real ones. But I always had mail go with me to do it and chop it down and help me put it up. And this year I was like, you know what? I got this. So I took my daughter to the tree farm and I picked up a saw. We went through the woods and picked a tree and I sawed that thing down (laughs) and it was so hard. (laughs) And I was like, I'm going to do this. And I finally the thing fell. And and also I have to add, I don't do small trees. I have a 14 foot vaulted ceiling. I wanted a 14 foot tree. So (laughs) this was not a small tree either. And that's just a tradition that I have in my heart because my family, we always did big trees and it's just a thing. Um, did you yell timber? Well, I didn't. <laughs> I say you did. No, I was, I was like doing like my best, like tennis, like, you know, oh, oh, like. <laughs> <laughs> you add a breath to yell timber. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and then so we drug it. All of a sudden I was like, oh God, how the hell am I going to get it upstairs? <laughs> I got it in my truck. I got it out of my truck. I got it into my hallway. 
I have pictures documenting this whole thing. Finally, I just get this surge of muscle. I'm like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> Mandy Hulk mode came out, and I just started pulling this thing by the back up the stairs, and it started to come, and I was oh, yeah. <laughs> but I got it, and I got it up, and it's standing, and it's wonderful, and it's beautiful, and I did it my damn self. That's awesome. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> Genius. So I've been avoiding screen time pretty hard with my son. And uh, he's three and a half now. And the holidays this is my first Thanksgiving with my son alone. And, you know, it's a whole set of emotions and things. But there was a decent amount of extra screen time because I was a little overwhelmed. <laughs> so we're watching Daniel Tiger. And Daniel Tiger has all these little songs about how to live your life. And... He starts singing them like outside of the show. And I'm like, oh, these are actually really good songs. <laughs> and so now I've been actually using them to like help remind him, like, grr, grr, grr out loud. <laughs> and you'll feel proud. And he's actually into it. And he's like, like proud of himself. And he's like, I'm gurring out loud. And I'm like, that's really great. So I think we might do some strategic screen time going forward. And maybe that can help. <laughs> so I think it's a genius. Adam, do you have one? Well, I've got small ones. We're going to consider these kind of genius and fails at the same time. That might small ones are big ones when your child is eight weeks old. They're oh like, my, seriously. They're momentous. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So I've taken advantage that diaper changing time. It's not my time, but I really love that time because it gives me great opportunity to really connect with her and whatnot. And so I would make up these songs and, and what have you. And so the song goes very simply. It's tutor checks, tutor checks, got to give a look at your tutor. Tutor checks, tutor checks, got to give a look at your tutor. So I would sing these, right? Well, as you can imagine, it's very repetitive and you sing it time and time again. Well, I really enjoy singing it and I would get into the lip. So the kind of the routine is because she hates to have her shirt pulled over her head is I would do it while I'm kind of taking the bits and pieces, you know, unpeeling her like an onion because she just really hated it. (laughs) So I really got into it. I removed her diaper and really got into it. And then I went into it and uh, then I kind of saw this kind of awkward look on her face. And then it happened, which was the tutor cover, as we call it, and the tutor catcher, as we also call it, was not placed and she shot a good nine inch poo missile against the entire, like the wipe thing, the whole nine yards and the look on her face of pure relief and enjoy. I was like, okay, cool. So that's what this, that's what this life is going to be about with you. Oh, no. Got it. So just remember tutor checks. Now, you know, now, you know, the song just wrap up first and then you're good to go. That's amazing. Nice. I have a genius. It's like a two-part genius because I feel like everything about it was geniusy. So we do not travel on Thanksgiving. We have sort of laid down the rule and we've been like, family, we're not traveling to see any of you. Also, please don't come to us. So we have, it's like my responsibility list holiday. The last two years, we've gone to one of our good friends. We're always in charge of bringing something that like doesn't really matter. So it's fine if we forget it. And if we bring it, then great. Last year, it was ice. This year, it was salad. It's like really fantastic. So part one of the genius is not traveling for Thanksgiving, which just feels amazing. Part two was that this year, we decided to bring along the kids' pajamas and so before we left, it's about a 40 minute drive from where we live. And so before we left, 
we changed the kids into their pajamas. And so when they both fell asleep in the car on the way home, when we got home, within 10 minutes of getting home, they were both in their respective bedrooms, sleeping in pajamas. We didn't have to like wake them up so much by changing them or doing anything. We could literally just transfer them to the car, from the car to the bed or crib. And it was amazing. I was like, maybe we have this parenting thing figured out. This feels like a huge step. So genius. It's amazing. (laughs) Definitely highly, highly recommend. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to the Parent Driven Development Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have questions that you'd like us to chat about on air, please email us at panel at parentdrivendevelopment.com or find us on Twitter at parentdrivendev. And if you like what you hear, please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash parentdrivendev or rate us on iTunes. Thanks. Thanks.